Hey everybody, it's Chris. Welcome or welcome back to the Beyond Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this conversation, would you head to our socials at Beyond Church AU, either on Instagram or Facebook and give us a follow. That's the easiest way to share this content with a friend who might find it helpful. And while you're at it, you can click the link in our description to sign up to our email newsletter. That's the easiest way to stay up to date on everything that's going on around here at Beyond. But in the meantime, I hope this following conversation inspires you to take your next step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Have I ever read the Bible? No. Yes. I read parts of oh, the Bible. Yeah, I read the whole thing. As a kid, I did. I used to have like our own like special ones. We used to have like the child Bibles with like the Jesus and like the kids and sit under a tree and stuff like that. Like in elementary school, we read it, yeah. I've skimmed it. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the other guys. <laughs> I know the one about that guy in his colourful cloak. Um... Do I think the Bible is relevant? I think uh, parts of it are definitely relevant, but a lot of it might be a little bit out of date. I honestly don't remember anything from the Bible. I think the lessons that it teaches around, I think, yeah. It's relevant today, for, maybe for some people, but not me. I think the Bible is inspirational and kind of frustrating at times. Awesome. Well, we are so excited to be able to jump into our conversation tonight with you, Dan, and so excited to have Josiah along yeah. as well. Thanks so much. Um, you guys are heading off to the cricket tomorrow night too. Yes, we are. Uh, big fan of AFL, soccer and cricket. And so tomorrow we're going to go watch the T20 of Australia showing Ireland where to go. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be good. Hey, well, Apologies if you're <laughs> Irish. But I think we all know how that's going to go. <laughs> Well, Dan, we are really uh, glad that you're here tonight. Thank you so much uh, for jumping into our, our conversation. And again, thank you to those of you who put questions forward bravely and boldly. Uh, we were able to pretty much squash all the questions that were asked. Uh, some of them kind of overlapped in some way. So maybe if you haven't heard your question pop up tonight, there are 14 questions all up, by the way. If you didn't hear your question pop up, uh, know that we've tried to fit it in with another question. Uh, but we are really excited to answer these questions. Dan, um, I actually had a question that I put forward and submitted. And Dan, the question is this. Dan, can you tell us a bit about your story? Well set up. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I was born in Melbourne, so in Carlton Hospital. Uh, we there till I think I was five or six when the family moved up to Brisbane, saw the sunshine and decided never to go back. Uh, and so I've kind of grown up in and around Brisbane my whole life, bar a little stint for study overseas. Uh, I am married to Erin. She's been with me for 12 years. Poor girl. Uh, but she's stoked to just keep saying yes. Uh, and so we've got three boys, Josiah's the oldest, he's seven, and then Zach's five and Seth is three. So life is hectic in our house. It's always noisy. Stuff's always getting destroyed. Uh, so bringing order from chaos just feels very biblical. Uh, I became actually a Christian, a follower of Jesus, uh, later in life. My parents both were Christians and took us to church when I was little. But we had a big car accident when I was nine that my mum was badly brain damaged uh, as a result of headbutting a truck at high speed. And so that kind of torpedoed my childlike faith. And I just took a big back step to the God question for a long time. And it wasn't until I finished up high school, most of the state school, secular friends, uh, that started to wonder, all right, what should I do? What should I study? What should I be aiming for in life so that when I get to my deathbed, I don't look back and regret how I've spent my years? I know life is fragile. I've seen how that plays out. And, and it was in that process of asking who are we and why are we here that one of the guys I worked with at the pool shop challenged me to read the Bible. 
And I didn't realize when Christians say read the Bible, they usually mean read parts of the Bible. I just thought, like an idiot, it was any other book, and you just start at the beginning and work your way through. And I got really muddled and confused by most of what happens in, in the first two-thirds of the Bible called the Old Testament. But for some reason, I just kept trudging, and I finally made it to the stories about Jesus. And I was just compelled by this, who Einstein called a luminous figure of the Nazarene. Uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So that if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. I am the window into heaven. And, uh, and I would just found his answers to life's questions compelling. I felt like he was reading my mail, that he knew exactly what was going on inside of me, that it was exposing not just what I wanted to be true, but also some of the dark things that we prefer to hide about our own lives. Uh, and then just offering life in response, forgiveness, freedom, and a future. And so I got to the end of reading these biographies of Jesus and just felt compelled to trust him, that he is someone unlike anyone else I'd ever met. Uh, and so I started around my 18th birthday then fumbling through following Jesus as a Christian, started going back to a church, and I had a ton of questions, probably not unlike everyone here, and have spent the last 17 years now, that's a long time, 17 years wrestling with those questions, always finding that the Bible welcomes investigation, that God's cool with that. Um, and so maybe just a couple of thoughts before we jump into Q&A, just to maybe take myself off the hook and lower your expectations. Um, whenever Q&As come up, uh, almost all of the questions deserve much longer answers. So let me say two things. One, I'm going to be more like a GP. Uh, you're going to come in with a question. I'm going to try and diagnose some of the symptoms and then send you to a specialist, right? As a generalist, I don't know everything, every dimension of these sorts of questions. And so I'll try and point you to a resource or a book or something online uh, that you can follow that up a little bit further with for some expert opinion. Um, the second thing is there's often dimensions to questions that are really personal that I can't pick up just from its wording or um, that maybe aren't appropriate to speak about publicly. And so if I miss something or you want to go a bit deeper, please come and chat to me afterwards and I'd love to hear more of your story, perhaps even pray for you if there's something going on in your world that you'd love love prayer for. And so a couple of thoughts in there. Happy to dive in. Um, be Hopefully be helpful. That's awesome. That would be great. Dan's so cool as well. Make sure you definitely do uh, chat to him before you leave today. Um, but hey, awesome. Dan, investigating together. First question. Here we go. Dan, how old is the Bible really? Is it still relevant to us today or are the ideas outdated? Yeah, great question, uh, if you're really new to all of this. Um, the first thing to know is the Bible is not a book. It's actually a library in and of itself. It's a collection of 66 books penned by some 40-plus authors over about a 1,500-year span in three continents and three languages, incredibly diverse set of genres that are there from sermons and poetry to architectural designs and geographical surveys to lore and poetry. It's, it's really diverse. And so when you say, how old is the Bible, well, which book? Um, probably the oldest piece of literature we have is the story of Job. It's an Old Testament story uh, in the wisdom literature. They think it's the most ancient because of the language form in it and the places that it mentions. It's pre-Abrahamic uh, in terms of its, uh, its origins. Uh, but anywhere from roughly about 15 BC, uh, 1500 BC, <laughs> uh, all the way through to 400 BC is where the 39 books of the Old Testament were written. And then the 27 books of the New Testament were written in the first century AD. So within a generation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, you had those books put into, into um, 
pen to papyrus. Uh, now, the question of whether it's relevant today probably depends on what you think about the Bible. Uh, everyone would at least say, as human literature wrestling with life's deepest questions, seeking to offer wisdom for how to navigate through much of its complexity and tragedy, there's a ton of wisdom in the Bible. Uh, people today that study those, uh, if you follow a religious tradition in a devoted way, actually all the markers for well-being are better for devout religious people than for irreligious people. So happiness, fulfillment, sense of purpose, relational dynamics, uh, sense of community, all of these things are richer for religious people than non-religious, which is interesting in and of itself. That speaks to some degree of relevance if you want a meaningful life. Uh, but broader than that, if you believe that God is revealing himself through the Bible and you investigate, look at the evidence, become convinced like I did that that's the case, that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, well, then it takes on a whole new degree of relevance because you're getting not just human reflections on life, but actually some divine insight on life as well and who, we're, who we are and why we're here and how then we're meant to live towards God's future. So that's yet to be answered depending on how you wrestle with the scriptures. Thanks, Dan. Our next question, Dan, why should I believe the Bible and not the other religious texts? They can't all be right. Yeah, it's a really meaningful question of how do we uh, wrestle with truth claims? Uh, and all religious texts actually often set out to do very different things. Some just try, seek to offer human wisdom, collective human wisdom, on maybe things that help bring about a sense of peace or human well-being. So it really depends upon what kind of scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran or the Vedas or the Bible or what, what we're really speaking about here. The Bible is relatively unique in that it does actually span a huge time period. And even more than that, it makes claims that are overtly historical in certain books. So it's not just a collection of wisdom or aphorisms or sayings. It really is saying that what God is revealing is rooted in history, most clearly around Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there are some ways that you can say, well, is there supernatural evidence that supports the Bible being sacred in that it comes from God? And I do think there are some things, like the fulfillment of prophecy that certain books in the Old Testament foretell God predicting future events, particularly around the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus, that then get fulfilled hundreds of years later. That's a good evidence that there's a supernatural agent at work able to see through the corridors of time and, and let us know in advance. Um, other ones is like the way that the diversity of the Bible actually pieces together to tell a unified story, almost like a divine editor is bringing together so many authors and times in history and works to be able to tell you something really unique. Uh, but for the most part, I think the way to test why trust it is, can you believe its historical claims centered around Jesus? Because Jesus is the core of the Christian story. If you're good with Jesus and the Gospels, then everything else just falls into place for the most part. Uh, and so when it comes to the Gospels, I think there are great historical reasons to trust that this really is reliable eyewitness testimony bearing account of Jesus's life, of his teachings, of his death and his resurrection from the dead. And so we've got a video on our channel, Can Only Trust the Bible, it really deals with that. I've got a chapter in the book, Questioning Christianity, that looks at why trust the Gospels. But just a couple of things. Um, the Gospels are really packed with intimate detail. Right? This is in an ancient world, no Wikipedia, no travel diaries, no Google Maps. You had to be there to understand the political tensions and the botany and the uh, time it takes to travel from one place to another, all of the religious customs, the architectural designs of the place. It's packed with fleshy details that you had to be there to know. Number two, it's full of embarrassing details. If you were writing the Gospels to try and convince people to believe in Jesus, you would do a much better job in the ancient world because they record a whole series of events that actually are counterproductive 
to making people believe it. It paints the apostles, the, the leaders of the early church, as a bunch of idiots on every page, not understanding Jesus' teachings, making massive mistakes, putting their foot in their mouth. Even at one time, Peter gets called Satan by Jesus, right? If there's one thing that's going to tank your credibility as a leader in the early church, it's getting called Satan by Jesus. And yet the Gospels are full of these embarrassing details. No one's trying to airbrush these out before it goes to print. No one's trying to make it more credible. They're just reporting accurately what happened, irrespective of how it looks. And so that dimension is really good at its credibility. And thirdly, just it's costly testimony. The people who went around telling the stories of what they saw were willing to pay in this life and potentially, if they were wrong, to uh, receive judgment in the afterlife for blaspheming, saying God had become human. And so uh, they were willing to put their lives on the line to say, no, we really saw him do this. We understand you don't like that, but we saw him do this. No matter what it costs us, we won't deny him. And so there's a few reasons to take it seriously. Hey, this next one's actually a statement uh, that we're hoping you could respond to. Statement reads like this. The Bible was put together by people. It's just a collection of ancient texts. I don't need a Bible. If we all just treated each other better, the world would be a better place anyway. It's a statement that has a degree of truth. If everyone treated each other better, this world would be better, no doubt. Um, And I think that's a big part of the moral message of the Christian story is to love God and love others. And if people followed Jesus, man, this world would be unrecognizable in how we're designed to love one another. But that's not all that the Christian story sets out to do. Because part of that, uh, and if you gave this message, if we were just better to each other, and people might say, yeah, but what cost to myself? Why should I be kind to others when I can get ahead by being harsh to others or ignoring others? Why should I care about other people's well-being? Um, so for a big part of humanity, they're relatively selfish. They don't want to go uh, morally further. But, but much bigger than this, the Bible speaks to questions that are far beyond just how do I have a, a good life here? How do I, I live a more kind life? It speaks to why we're here, our sense of purpose. Is it just to live a moral life or is there a reason for your existence, something to be working towards here on planet Earth? It helps to diagnose what's gone wrong with the world, that haven't been made for a relationship with God, something that really does fulfill us, a spiritual dimension to reality that nothing else can replace. We actually are damaged now by evil, that the freedom God gives to us we abused rather than do good to do evil. And as a result, we're separated from God. We've got this sense of alienation even within ourselves and none of us live up to even what we wish we were. And so a diagnosis is actually the heart of the human problem. War, greed, everything else is really to do with a problem in the human heart, that something's not right between us and our Creator. And then it goes about setting this right, not just to give us a new moral framework to say, do better, which many of us struggle to live up to anyway. Instead, it says there's forgiveness. And you can have a relationship with God again because of this forgiveness. And even more, it offers a cure to the human condition. If we all have this terminal disease, what the Bible might call sin, it says, well, the only solution to that isn't living better. It's actually getting resurrected. It's being given eternal life by God, the only one who has the ability to bring back the dead. And so what the Bible actually offers in a relationship with God, and not just for this life, but in eternity, and a charter for who we're meant to be and how we're to live here, is so much richer than just a message of do better. And so um, maybe this person who's making this statement is, is invited to explore what the Bible's message is really about. Religion is not just morality with some fun stories. Thanks, Dean. Hey, question five. This is a good one. How do I know my interpretation is right and that I am reading the Bible in context? 
Great question, uh, because the truth is we get this wrong all the time, uh, mainly because we read it through 21st century eyes, and that makes sense. Like, you pick up a Bible, you start reading it, you assume it's written to you, but although the Bible may be written for our sake, it wasn't written to us. And so every book of the Bible was written to a particular group of people at a particular point in time to be understood through their cultural moment. It's like if I said the words 9-11 right now. Everyone here who's been alive for 21 years understands what that phrase means. But if we went back 25 years ago and I said 9-11, you'd be like, what? What is that? Is that where you get a free Slurpee at 7-Eleven? Is it something like that? Uh, because it just took on a whole new cultural meaning post-2001. So when we hear words, we imbue it with that meaning. So for the ancient people, when they're being uh, written to in the letters or the biographies, it's written in a way that they would understand, but not necessarily we would. And so what you need to do is actually put yourself back into their shoes to be able to rightly interpret what was intended. And that's not an easy task, but that's why they have cool tools like a study Bible, right? These big, thick Bibles that when you open a book like the Gospel of John, it'll tell you who's John. And who's he writing to? And when's he writing? And then as you go through and you're reading parts of the Bible, there'll be this big footnote section at the bottom of the page that's helping give you context and explaining things that you would miss if you were a newcomer to, to Christianity and uh, reading it with 21st century eyes. Or if you're pixel addicted, kind of like I am, and you love YouTube, uh, you can watch The Bible Project. It's a fantastic group of animated videos over from the US where they explain books of the Bible in their context so you can understand the message. It's a really helpful way to start that process of getting better at interpreting the Bible. Some good resources there too. Dan, our next question is, how important is the origin of the universe for Christianity? Does believing in creation or evolution even matter? Yeah, helpful thought. Um, it's massive for Christianity. The idea that the world came into existence is an expressly Christian claim. The very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as a historical reality, that statement is really unusual in the ancient world. If you go and read all of the Babylonian or Sumerian or any of the other Arcadian accounts of creation, matter and energy already existed. The gods were made out of the same stuff as the universe, and one god killed another god and split his body in two and made heavens out of half the body of the dead god and the earth out of the other half and then made humans out of the blood, right? It's pretty, pretty brutal. Uh, apologies to any children in the room, namely my own. Um, uh, and, and so this sort of vision of its pre-created stuff, everyone believed that the universe was eternal. It was only the Hebrews that claimed in the beginning God created it out of nothing. Now, fast forward to the Greek philosophers then in the 3rd and 4th century BC, and then fast forward another 2,000 years after the scientific revolution to Einstein and Edmund Hubble and George Lemaitre and many of the great physicists of the 20th century. They came to realize, actually, no, our universe did have a beginning. Time, space, matter, and energy comes into existence out of nothing at some finite point in the past. And so Christianity and the Christian story has been claiming something for thousands of years that philosophy and then science has only just more recently caught up to, right? Um, so Christianity is good with the notion of an origin story, of a big bang, of all of that. It's, uh, it's profoundly a Christian idea. As to how did God create, uh, what is the book of Genesis designed to do as a piece of literature? Is it meant to give you a scientific account of how God created or a theological account of the means by which who created and for what purpose? Uh, this is where Christians disagree. And so as a Christian, you have options as to how to reconcile God's two books of nature 
which we study with science, and of Scripture, which we study with good literary methods. And some Christians that I know who love God and love the Bible are young earth creationists. They think that the universe is 6,000 years old, uh, that humanity is 6,000 years old, and, uh, and that God has created things with an appearance of age, and mainstream science is wrong. Uh, some on the other end of the spectrum are evolutionary creation. Some of my profs in England were certainly that way. And they think, no, 13.8 billion years, scientific consensus is right. God created the, the, the world 4.5 billion years ago and life about 2 billion years ago. And he uses the process of evolution to finally bring about bipedal hominids like us who have opposable thumbs, really useful, and a big enough brain, really useful, to be able to have a unique relationship with, to be able to house a mind. And then he imbues us with a mind, soul, spiritual consciousness, these sorts of things. And then the Genesis story continues. And there's a whole lot of different options in between. The reality is, as a Christian, you have options to follow the evidence, both in Scripture and in nature, where it points. And this is an in-house conversation amongst Christians who can disagree and still believe in God, still believe in the Bible, still follow Jesus, uh, and even if those disagreements mean that uh, we read the Bible differently in those parts. And this next question is about the Old Testament. First part of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. This one's specific to the Old Testament. Why does the God of the Old Testament seem so violent and Jesus so loving? Uh, I dare say maybe um, because it can come down to selective reading. Uh, the Old Testament is really big, like 39 books. It's about two-thirds, three-quarters of the Bible in terms of the number of chapters and verses that it makes up. And the vast majority of that time, of the time that it records, uh, it, God is not doing acts of judgment. They're actually very small, punctuated moments of Noah's flood or of the scene with um, the Canaanite conquest in the book of Joshua or with what happens with the Amalekites in 1 Samuel or with Jerusalem itself being carried off into exile. We're talking about just a few isolated cases of God supposedly bringing judgment. Uh, and the rest of the time, he's gracious and compassionate, revealing himself to sinners and, and being what the Bible describes as long of nose, patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to know the truth, all to come to repentance. He's providing miraculously. He's delivering people out of slavery. He's setting them up with a model of how to live close to him. And so it's overwhelmingly an account of God's love moving towards humanity and rather than getting rid of us, seeking to redeem and restore, to invite us back into relationship with him. And that's the narrative that Jesus himself picks up on. Jesus describes himself as that vision of God, restoring and redeeming. But Jesus also promises it's right that a loving God deal with evil. If me as a father just let evil wreak havoc on my family without bringing it to a stop at some point, without bringing some corralling of these behaviors to be able to make sure that people will grow up to become the people that they're intended to be, my children, then we wouldn't think of me as a loving parent. And so God actually is a loving God, needs to step in and deal with evil at times to make sure that the project of humanity continues on towards those ends. And Jesus himself promises that one day he's going to come back to bring an end to evil, to restore justice through judgment, but to do it with a lens of wanting as many people as possible to be saved and not to face that. He would much rather carry that judgment on our behalf, which is the whole story of the cross. This is another one uh, just around the Old Testament as well, Dan. Why is Jesus not specifically addressed by name in the Old Testament? 
It depends on which name you mean. Uh, if you mean Jesus, which is sort of a Greek reading of the word Yeshua or Joshua, uh, which is the Hebrew name. Uh, so if it's Joshua in the room, you have the same name as Jesus. Congratulations. Uh, it means Yahweh saves. And it's more of a storytelling thing. Names carried meaning way more than just kind of the markers that we use them for today. We name people after fruit or a point on a compass or something like that. We have interesting naming habits. Uh, but for them, it was all about the meaning of the name. And Jesus actually had many names. Um, so you go through the angelic uh, sort of announcement of his birth to Joseph and to Mary, what we'll talk about at Christmas time soon, and they described him as Emmanuel, which means God with us, which is what we sing about at Christmas time, but it's particularly what was foretold of him in Isaiah, one of the ancient prophets eight centuries before Jesus. One of the, the statements around who he would be, what function he would play, God coming to be with us, God incarnate. So his name is explicitly mentioned, if you think Emmanuel or some of the other titles that he takes to himself, like the great I Am or the Son of Man. These are names that do explicitly point back to God in the Old Testament, but the name of Jesus itself, uh, yeah, you get a pass on that one. Hey, Dan, this is a really good question. It's, it's pretty long too, so I'll try and go slow on it just for myself more than anything, but this is how it reads. God is a creator. Why did he not create a clear, undeniable account of this gift? Why do we rely on other people's stories of what happened and then the thousand more years of people interpreting these messages and using it for whatever purpose their religion applies this message? Yeah, this is a really helpful question. Um, I don't think the Bible is the only way that we can know about God. Uh, for instance, many of the people in the biblical story themselves didn't have the Bible. Uh, think about Noah or think about Abraham. They didn't have a Bible to read at that point. They were like the first stories in the Bible, and yet they had a relationship with God. They knew Him. How? Because He had made Himself known, both through nature. The Bible says in Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. That you can have a knowledge that God is real just by looking at the beauty of the night sky or the awe that breaks in upon you as you see an awesome sunrise over the sea. Like, wow, there's something there, this God consciousness, this desire to worship. So you can know things about God through creation. You can also, in Romans, it says that you can know things about God through your conscience, that all of us are imbued with or have written on our hearts a degree of right and wrong. And that this isn't something that's just bred into us through evolution. It's something that's a gift of God to reveal himself that there is a moral order to the universe. And we can either be on the right side or the wrong side of this moral order. And hence, we need forgiveness. And so, through creation and conscience are ways that God speaks. He can also reveal himself personally to individual people, as he does in the Bible. But the Bible is given to us as God revealing himself through history, I think, for the purpose of having a clear revelation that you can test everything else against. You know, you said people can misinterpret it. Well, it's pretty hard to misinterpret the life of Jesus as a whole. You can take one statement that Jesus says and blow that out of proportion or use it to dis, um, dis uh, all of the rest of Christian thinking. But for the most part, if you read a full biography of Jesus, it's going to critique every single one of us. Him as the awesome example of the way of love, loving God and loving others. Every one of us is going to read that and we'll feel uncomfortable at some point because he calls us out for our shortcomings. And so I, I think the cool thing about the revelation of the Bible is Jesus is constantly reforming the church and challenging us to become more like him. Because at any point we misinterpret the Bible or try to use it at our own ends. And you read a story about Jesus and, and he totally exposes that, that sort of impulse. And so I love that aspect. And maybe why God chose to do it this way, I think, is because he wants to partner with humanity in the redemption of the world. 
He is always, from creation point, where we were designed to be the gardeners and governors of the world, taking a small cultivated garden and helping to encompass the rest of the wild world. That was God's original task for us, and he wants us to be in that future task of caring for the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back to and so. Effectively, when you think about who would you love to elect to high political office, to be our governors and our MPs and our prime minister, you want people of good character and of good skill. Well, that's why he gives us these sorts of revelations, so that we have to develop and learn those virtues in how we carry ourselves and follow Jesus, so that we can become the wise people that he wants us to be. Dan, this next one is it's, it's a good one to struggle with, because it is, it's, it's hard, um, it, it's confusing. The question is this, if God is about love and compassion, why did he send his people to war to kill other people? Yeah, I struggle with this one. Uh, I really do. And so if you ask this question, I totally get it. Um, like you've got a conscience maybe that's really shaped by 2,000 years of Christian history where the stories of Jesus, love thy neighbor, turn the other cheek, forgive your enemy, bless those who persecute you, were so shaped by the teaching of Jesus that you go and read a story like the Canaanite conquest where Joshua is told to go and to annihilate effectively the seven tribes uh, in Canaan at the time and kill every man, woman, and child, and even beast. Let nothing that has breath survive. And you're like, that's not sound. Like, Jesus, I totally get the dissonance. And Christians wrestling with this have sort of come up with four options over time in how to deal with it. The first is to actually agree. Maybe the Old Testament God is just a jerk, right? Maybe it's uh, 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 two gods at work. The Old Testament God's a baddie and the New Testament God's a goodie. And so we just got to get rid of following the Old Testament God and, and trust the New Testament God. That's like the, the, the way that Marcion, a second century teacher, did it, branded as a heretic because Jesus claimed to be the God revealed in the Old Testament. So it's not really, I think, a live option for Christians. The second is to say, well, maybe not all the Bible is true. Maybe the Gospels are solid, but some of these other stories in the Old Testament, these are people that were um, sent into Canaan maybe to ask these people to leave nicely, but in a religious and culturally abhorrent zeal to uh, protect God's honor, they said, God wills it. And like the crusaders went in thinking they were justified to kill. And they just put these commands to kill onto God's lips as they wrote down the scriptures. And maybe that's what's going on here. And the Bible's not true. Um, again, I wrestle with that one because uh, Jesus seemed to think that all of scripture was trustworthy and true, that it does come from God. That's how he spoke of the reliability of, of the Old Testament. So I, I probably don't feel like that's a live option for me. The other two are by far the most uh, popular. Um, one is actually to say, okay, these small, punctuated instances of God's judgment in the Old Testament, they stand out because they are the exception, not the norm. How do we make sense of those? And is there any way that these acts of judgment could be justified? Is it right that a loving God step in at judge at some point? And you might want to draw analogies from modern day experience. I remember when Boko Haram kidnapped 273 Nigerian schoolgirls and they were taken off. And you can only imagine the horrendous things that they encountered uh, being taken for his army. And there was international cries from the most liberal of people to say, get them back. Send in the Navy SEALs, send in whatever military technology we have, bring an end to this horrendous evil. It must be stopped. 
so that interventionist sense comes out in certain points where we think this is wrong, someone needs to step in and bring it to an end. And could there be some analogies to what's happening with these stories, that there were really heinous accounts of what was happening in those cultures, that only God is in a position, he doesn't play God, he is God, and he knows when and how judgment needs to happen to be able to bring these about. There's questions around how he could recompense non-combatants or the innocent that would get caught up as collateral damage in that stuff, and whether or not the afterlife is a way that you know, he could uh, recompense those people who unjustly suffer. So there's sort of questions that, that sometimes come up as to whether or not some of these acts of judgment could be justified. The fourth is actually to question our interpretation. They're actually reading these stories wrong, again, because we're reading them through 21st century eyes rather than the cultural lens of the time. Because when you look in the ancient Near East, which is the cultural world of the Old Testament that we're describing, there was a fairly common form of literature, a genre, called conquest narratives. And you'll see it everywhere. And the most common feature of these narratives is hyperbole, that they overstate overwhelmingly uh, the nature of what's really happening. So, for instance, if I said to you that uh, tomorrow, uh, coming home from the T20 game, that Ireland was absolutely annihilated by Australia, right? You know that's hyperbole, right? You know that I'm not saying that Australia brought machine guns and mowed down the Irish as they entered out onto the field. You know when it comes to sports language and commentating that this is what we do all the time, this kind of hyperbole. And if that's the same with ancient conquest narratives, then that's effectively what Joshua is describing. And there's some hints that this is certainly the case. The cities that are described are military forts, not population centers. It's not like Brisbane is being attacked. It's Inogra Barracks, right? Everyone else lives in the, up in the hills in, uh, in Fertile country, not down in the trading routes where people just went um, for, for um, protection. So they're only actually attacking cities that would be predominantly there uh, with uh, military people who didn't want to leave um, when they were warned by God to do so. Um, and you also have evidence that after Israel supposedly wiped out a particular tribe, well, the very next chapter describes that these supposedly wiped out people are now enslaving a particular tribe from Israel. Uh, or in the book of Judges, again, these groups have grown up and are now overcoming and, uh, and enslaving God's people. And, uh, and so you're like, what's going on here? There's really good evidence in the text itself that the ultimate command was to drive them out, not to actually slay them. It was an act of them being like Adam and Eve and like Israel later, exiled from the promised land because of evil. Uh, and so that's another option that's there. We have a video on our channel uh, where I really try and wrestle with the notion of religious violence. It's called Did God Command Genocide? Go check that out. It's a, it's a difficult question to wrestle with, and I appreciate people asking it. Thanks, Dan. Hey, we're in our last couple of questions now. Uh, but this next question is it's a, another cracker. What makes God's rule about things like same-sex marriage, sex before marriage, and other ethical and moral topics right? And what relevance is it? Yeah, this sort of question about morality and right and wrong, I think is a huge conversation that as a culture we don't really know how to have very well. Uh, we all tend to think that what we think about morality is right, <laughs> um, without realizing that if all morality is good and evil is what I think, or what my culture thinks at a particular point in time, then morality changes all the time. And my moral statements that this is right, this is wrong, actually are meaningless. All I'm saying is I prefer this, right? Um, so morality is either objective, it's true for all times and people and places everywhere, or it's relative to cultures and people and places. And so if it's relative, if there is no objective moral standard, that means that colonial slavery 300 years ago was right. It was morally good 
because that's what the vast majority of people believed. And not just in the West, it was a practice almost universally done in different cultures throughout time. Slavery was right, it was good. Aristotle considered it the right ordering of reality, that some are fit to rule and others to be ruled, women and slaves among them. You can pick up that argument with Aristotle. Uh, and, and so what I'm wanting to say is if you're sitting here thinking, actually, no, slavery is wrong, and those people didn't just believe differently to me, they were wrong for what they believed. That feeling or intuition that you have that they were morally wrong or evil for, for the way that they treated slaves only makes sense if there is objective morality, if there is some law outside of time and place and culture that bears itself upon us. And so the Christian story says this is the case, that God is the source of goodness, that anything that is unlike God or goes away from God's will, that is evil, and that we are responsible, accountable to God for what we do. There will be justice in the world. He'll ultimately hold these things to account. And because of that, uh, we can justify slavery is wrong, always and everywhere, because people are created with inherent value and dignity and worth. And so uh, the question of what makes what God says about sexual ethics and marriage and other things, well, if God exists, then his will represents what is good, and anything that goes against it is, by definition, evil. Now, if God exists... It's safe to say that he knows more than you do. <laughs> he knows every atom in the universe. He sees through the corridors of time. He has access to a wisdom that we only scratch at on the surface. And God doesn't have to tell us why that's right or that's wrong. He could just say it, and that would still be right and wrong, relevant for us, ultimately accountable to it. Thankfully, though, the Christian story does often spell out why God does things a certain way. Many of God's rules in the Bible tend to work better for us. And that's why I was saying, on average, religious people tend to have higher rates of well-being when they follow the goodness of God's design. It seems to go better for them in, uh, in life. But some things, it's hard to see the negative consequences for. So someone might say to me, Dan, I can't see a negative consequence of me sleeping with my girlfriend. Or I can't see a negative consequence between uh, two girls getting married. What, what's going on here? It seems to be a loving, meaningful, monogamous relationship. What's happening here? And it, it ultimately comes down to a question of purpose. It's not just whether something is good for you or not good for you. It's like, what is the reason for a thing's existence? And in the Christian story, for sex and marriage, it's not just there to make you happy. It's not just there to uh, give you a sense of individual fulfillment. The goal of sex and marriage was to help us fulfill the great uh, the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, obviously, biological complementarity was sort of a necessity there. Um, but more than that, a, a deeper function for marriage in the Bible is to serve as a trailer for the coming feature film in eternity. So that human marriage between a man and a woman, a union of difference, is actually meant to be a foretaste, a small picture or window into the kind of intimate and meaningful relationship that we're designed to have with God forever. And so God uses the relationship with Israel in the Old Testament, of Jesus and the church in the New Testament. It says that there is a great wedding coming. The whole Bible story is of a marriage between heaven and earth that ultimately will be revealed when Jesus comes back again. And so because marriage is meant to point towards something beyond itself, that's why uh, the biblical story has certain sexual ethics that are set up. And it doesn't rule out sexual minorities and say, uh, just exclude them. Actually, it says something that's confronting to all of us. The sexual ethics of the Bible, there isn't a person I know who isn't called to account for having misstepped in our own sexual story or misusing our sexual desires. And so Jesus said, it's not just what you do with your bodies, it's also what you do with your imaginations. He lifts the game. But the good news of the Christian story is there is always forgiveness 
on offer through God. And there is always an opportunity to bring our bodies back to be a means by which we can tell a bigger story. And, uh, and so, you know, if you believe in God, that grounds what you think about sex and marriage and its purpose, and that's why sexual ethics. If you don't believe in God, I don't expect you to agree with the Bible's vision of sexual ethics. That's not where we start. It's a question of, can I believe that God's real, that He loves me, that He has a certain purpose and plan for my life? And if I can trust Jesus, that He loves me more than I love myself, then maybe even His vision for sexual ethics is going to be better for me than, than I realize right now. Thank you for that framework. Hey, we're in our last final three questions, Dan. Here we go. We live, we die. What else is there? And if there is a God, why do we see a world in turmoil? Why would God allow that to happen to us? Yeah, well, if there is no God, then there is nothing else. We live, we die, that's it. You go to the ground, no hope, suffering wins. That's the final leg of the story. Um, and it's kind of a hopeless outlook, to be honest. You know, people are like, YOLO, you only live once. But it's like, yeah, that's great while well, you're healthy. And then all of a sudden suffering comes or depression hits or something good in your life is taken away or you're debilitated or you're hit down with an illness. And you're like, wow, I've got nothing to carry me through this difficult experience. Uh, the Christian story actually has a really meaningful answer to the question of suffering. The fact that we have this intuition that this is wrong, this is not the way that the world should be, actually speaks to the truth of the Christian story because it starts out that we were created for good, to have a loving relationship with God and with each other and to experience the world in a way that was harmonious, set in a garden, access to the tree of life, that suffering and sickness and death and decay are not how God intended us to live is really explain the Christian story that we were set in the garden, but then we use our freedom to go against goods, God's good design and so become damaged by evil. And so there is something wrong. The Bible calls it the fall. We do not relate to God or to each other or to our world as we were intended to. There is something wrong. And so the Bible gives us some answers as to why a good God might allow a world like this. And I think it's for a meaningful existence, right? God could have created every single one of us just to be programmed in the matrix, following exactly what he wants us to do, biological code. None of us have freedom at all. And so everything happens exactly what he wants. But he wanted to create beings that could experience the same loving relationship that he had in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he creates us, imbues us with significant moral freedom. But anyone who has a kid knows that if you give a kid life, that child has a will of their own. And no matter how much you love them and want good for them, they have the ability to choose something else. And that's exactly what the Christian story says. It's because God wanted a meaningful world where relationship was possible that he gave us freedom and we misuse that freedom to now be at odds with God and the world around us. But the Bible doesn't promise total answers to why we suffer. And there's this cool story in, in Job mentioned before where he's a relatively good guy. Everything's going well for him in the world. He's rich, big family, but then a series of unfortunate events mean everything is robbed from him. And he ends up uh, in a skin sickness, sitting in the dust of sort of a house that now entombs his kids. They were all collapsed in uh, as a, a house collapsed on their heads. Uh, and all of his wealth is stolen away by natural disaster or enemy rages. Even his wife turns on him like, this guy's life is torn apart in a moment. And uh, he starts questioning why. Why would God let this happen? And as he starts to have his friends come, and they assume that God's in control, and so you get what you deserve, kind of the karmic idea, that's what they thought. And so if you're getting bad, Job, you obviously did bad. What did you do, dude, to tick God off so much? And he's like, I can't see anything I did. And so he starts questioning, is God really in control? Is God really good? And eventually he demands an audience with heaven and God turns up. But God does not answer the question of why. Instead, 
he gives him a quiz of 64 questions, none of which Job knows how to answer. And the whole exercise was designed to help Job wrestle with the fact that, Job, I understand from your vantage point why you're asking this question, but you don't know what I know. It's like Doctor Strange in the Marvel movies in Infinity Wars, you know, where he can look through all those possible 14 million different futures to see which one they could actually beat Thanos and what do they need to do to get there. He can't tell anyone what they need to do because telling them would mean that they can't actually get there. It's required that it unfold a certain way because of cause and effect. And so God's in the exact same position, can look through the corridors of time, knows exactly why he lets things happen to work towards his ultimate end game. But he can't always let us know those things. And so it's a question of can we trust him, that he has good reasons. And some answers, not all the answers, but that's where I finally got to Jesus. And Jesus said, you know, if you want to know what God's like, look at me. And Jesus wept over the suffering that those around him experienced. He did something about it, stepping in to heal, restoring beauty to the blind and dancing to the lame and music to the deaf. This sort of foretaste, he said, of the world to come where he will resurrect anyone who believes in him to have eternal life. No more suffering, sickness, crying, death or pain anymore. All the shortcomings of this life and these bodies will be done away with and everything will be made new. And he also promises that somehow God can work through suffering to bring about a meaningful end. And he shows that actually by suffering for us on the cross. Jesus was the most innocent human being that has ever lived. He never sinned, and yet he suffered on the cross. Most people would look at that agony that he went through, the excruciating pain, literally in Latin, excrucis, from the cross, excruciating pain, and think, man, this is meaningless. And yet that death was exactly the doorway through which God would extend forgiveness to whosoever believes and open up a door of eternal life to anyone. And Jesus said, look, if you... I get why suffering raises the question, is God there and does he care? But God's answer is not a why, but a who. He sends Jesus to suffer for us, to show the full extent of God's love for us so that we can trust him even when we don't have all the answers. So for hope and meaning in suffering and to have God walk with you through it, a God with scars, I know I would much rather have Jesus in suffering than, than not. And so uh, it's not a total response, but certainly there's a lot more to be said on that subject if you want to come and chat after. Well, Dan, our next question, I think, might actually tie into that last response as well. Uh, it reads like this. Jesus was a gift from God to bring the message of God's endless love for us and forgiveness of our sins. So why are these messages recorded in a way that is often misinterpreted or used in ways that have caused much suffering in this world? Yeah, I, I, I take that on. Um, one of my friends and sort of mentor figures is a guy named Dr. John Dixon. He's an ancient historian here from Australia, also uh, an Anglican minister. But he wrote a really helpful book uh, called Bullies and Saints, which is an honest look at the last 2,000 years of Christian history at the best moments and the worst. And there are some bad ones where people who carry the name Jesus have done horrendous things, misinterpreting the Bible, twisting scripture to serve uh, heinous ends. And so... The thing that really stands out to me, though, is the fact that what exposes them is not less Christianity, but more Christianity. The problem with these guys is not that they were following Jesus too much, but they weren't following him enough. They were being selective in their reading of the Gospels, and, uh, and they were willfully ignoring those statements that Jesus makes that would call out what they're doing as evil. And so uh, the best antidote to bad Christianity is more Christianity not none. 
Uh, and so what I would encourage people to do in that regard is just to, to get a fuller sense of the teaching of Jesus. Now, why would God choose to do it in this way? Again, Scripture gives us this full, solid anvil against which everything is ultimately going to be tested. And it survived. It's, it, it reveals everything that is unworthy. Uh, and so without a written record that records the, the total life of Jesus and his teaching, you would have people abusing their own individual revelations or their own experiences of God to interpret reality. It's because we've got something objective in the Gospels that can be the, the thing against which we test and say, actually, that's not real Christianity. That's not how God intends us to live. Dan, it's so clear. It's just to pause for a moment before we jump into this last question as well. I'm, I'm amazed by your recall as well because I like I can take a shopping list to the grocery shops and I still will forget what I actually need to get for the shops or what's on the list and all the rest. But it's so clear that in terms of investigating this truth for yourself. I have the same problem, so I think it must be selective memory. Oh, that's Anything true. my wife says, I tend to forget. It's just a human, so, uh, a human uh, nature uh, thing. But yeah. I can just see so clearly through your own investigating um, how much this is meant for you and how much it's impacted your life as well. Um, so as we look at as we look at the Bible, this is our last question. It's really I really was just teeing that up for our last question. But um, but Dan, what does it mean to trust the Bible? Yeah, th- that'll take on different dimensions at different stages of your life. I think. Um, what does it mean to trust anything or anyone? Uh, you, if you met me, you wouldn't trust me with your life, right? Because I've given you no reasons to. You don't know me. Uh, And so it's only as you grow in relationship with a person that you realize how trustworthy they really are, that you give more and more of yourself to them and entrust yourself to them. Uh, And I think the Bible works in a similar way. Um, Jesus is the centerpiece of the Christian story. And I came to the point where I trusted him without knowing much else about the Bible and having all these problems and all these questions. And, And my experience of trusting the Bible was constantly seeing whether or not in following Jesus, it actually meant for a life worth living. Uh, when I listened to what he said and put it into practice, whether or not that helped me become a person that I wanted to be, um, whether or not it made me move towards others in a way that I want to live towards others rather than selfishly towards myself. Um, the wisdom of the Bible proved true over time. You're like, no, no, I know way better than that. And then you do something and like an idiot, you shipwreck your own life or relationship. You're like, ah, oh, should have listened to the Bible. Uh, And the more and more I've done that over time, I really have sensed God speaking through it. And so whether you come as someone who thinks that the Bible is God's word, that there is a supernatural element and God speaks through it to you, or whether you're just looking at it as historical documents or sacred text for a particular religious tradition right now, um, I would just encourage you to take those little steps of testing to see whether or not Jesus and God really are trustworthy in what they promise. Uh, And in so doing, I think over time for me, learning to trust the Bible just meant I I realized that there is an authority outside of myself that I submit to. I trust God that he knows better for me and for my life than I do for myself. Uh, And the more and more I've done that over time, I, I haven't regretted it. It's the points where I've tried to go against God's good design that I've looked back and I'm like, yeah, that was costly. Um, so I think that's a, t- a thing with time as you develop in your r- trust in God. Dan, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you to yourself and Josiah for joining us tonight for a meaningful conversation as well. Can we please give Dan and Josiah a big round of applause for coming along and joining us tonight, Dan? Thank you. Well, once again, thanks so much for listening. And hey, if you live in the Griffin, Marumba Downs, North Lakes or Moreton Bay region, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend environments. 
You can find out more by heading to our website, beyondchurch.com.au. You'll find directions, service times, and what you can expect, as well as information on our Upstreet Kids Club, which is our primary school-aged environment, and Infinity Youth, our high school-aged environment. That website, beyondchurch.com.au.